If you have your Bible, let's turn together to Romans chapter 16. Yes, this is the last chapter of Romans. Can you believe that? And uh, Romans 16 will be in verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, then it should be on page 950 in the black Bible that's on the end of each pew. So you can pick that up. And if you don't have a paper, physical copy of the Bible for yourself, then please uh, just take that one home. It's our gift to you. Uh, as, as we get into this, just to note, yes, this is the last chapter of Romans. I think we're going to finish Romans uh, at the end of February. And then after that, we'll spend five weeks looking at the doctrines of grace. Uh, and then on to First Samuel. Lord willing, that's the plan. So, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Role models are good, if they're good role models. I think every, every parent knows that we would like our children to have good role models. And some of the places that people used to look for good role models, it's pretty hard to find them there anymore. There's not a whole lot of athletes that you can say, boy, I really, really hope that you turn out like him or like her. Not very many. Certainly not a lot of politicians that we can say, boy, I hope my children end up exactly like that. Not many that we would see in TV and movies. So there's fewer and fewer that you can see kind of held up in popular culture that would be good role models, but we need them. We do need those people that we can say, hey, I really hope that my children would be like this, and I think the church is a great place to find those kinds of people, those who exhibit the grace of God at work in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit, and who are serving. And did you know it's not just for our children either? We actually never grow out of the need to have good role models that we would look to to imitate even if you've been in Christ for 80 years and lots of people look to you because you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit in such a wise way, it's still the command of Scripture to do things like this. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. To look and to see where is there good that I should be imitating? Where do I see the grace of God at work in my brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that are going to stir me up to be more Christ-like as well. It reminds me of what Jonathan Edwards said in his resolutions. <clears throat> you may know something about that. When, when Jonathan Edwards was a young man, uh, he wrote down 70 resolutions that he reviewed for the rest of his life uh, about just how he wanted to live as a Christ-like person. And one of those resolutions was this, whenever I hear anything spoken in a conversation of any person, if I think what is said of that person would be praiseworthy in me, I will endeavor to imitate it. And that's a good thing to do. And what we have in front of us in these verses that we just read is, is uh, something about three people, three Christians that are held up as exhibiting these spiritual fruits and exhibiting traits that are worthy of imitating. Now where we are in Romans, just remember that the book of Romans is a letter. <clears throat> it's a letter from the Apostle Paul 
to the church in Rome, which back then looked pretty different from the church in Rome today. I'll just leave that for now, all right? But it's a letter, and uh, this letter is mostly about the content of the gospel and kind of what the gospel is, the fact that we are sinners, that that doesn't that that applies not just to Jews or to Gentiles, uh, not just to people who grew up around the scriptures or who didn't, but it applies to everybody that we're born with a sin nature, and that the only thing that we can do about that is well, actually nothing. There's nothing we can do about that, but there is something that God has done for us, which is that Christ has laid down His life as a propitiation for our sins to be received, not by works, but by faith by faith alone in Christ alone that we can be saved, whether Jew, Gentile, or anybody else. That's kind of the first four chapters of Romans deal with that. We're all sinners and salvation is in Christ. After that, he begins to talk about who we are in Christ once we have, uh, have been born again, once we've believed uh, that, that we're secure. Uh, from chapters 5 through 8, whether, whether we are plagued by the fact that we still sin, whether we're plagued by the fact that we're suffering still in this broken world, he says, you can be assured that Jesus is your Savior. And if you're in Christ, He's going to keep hold of you, and you're going to make it. And he goes on and he deals with questions having to do with, with Jews and Gentiles and why is it that so many of the Jewish people have rejected the Jewish Savior, Jesus, and, and deals with election and, and various kinds of doctrinal issues there. And you come to chapter 12 and he begins to say, okay, therefore, because all of these things are true, now, if this is true of you in Christ, you need to live out what is true of you in Christ. If you have been united to Christ, if you're dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus because He died and rose again, now live that way and given us all kinds of things about that. But as we're coming to the end of this letter, we're just really reminded, hey, this is a letter. And this was a letter that was written by a real man to real people. And in chapter 16, he begins listing out various people who were involved in the sending and the receiving of this letter. Phoebe involved probably in the sending, probably the letter carrier, and then various others that he's going to greet by name who were there in Rome and mention various things about them. Well, that's just kind of where we are, but, but these first people that he names, Phoebe and Prisca and Aquila, are admirable examples to us, and we want to see their admirable example. We want to see how it reflects Christ and his attitude toward us as sinners. And we want to see if we can uh, apply that to our lives, imitate that. So let's look first of all at this woman named Phoebe, who's mentioned in chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. So when he says, I commend to you, probably what that means is that when the letter to the Romans arrived in Rome to the church, it was being carried by this woman, Phoebe. And, and he was saying to them, the letter carrier that I have sent to you is somebody that you should receive. Now, who is Phoebe? Well, it says that she's a servant of the church at Sincre. We'll talk about that term servant in just a second, but she was from Sincre. And that's a, that's a town, it's a village that was about eight miles outside of Corinth. Paul is probably writing this letter from Corinth. And it seems that Phoebe is probably someone who is moving from Sincre to Rome. And so this is a good opportunity for Paul to send his letter to the Romans. And he sends it along with Phoebe. And so he's asking them, please receive this woman. 
but she is our sister, he says. Our sister Phoebe. That's a reminder to us, by the way, that if your trust is in Jesus, if God has adopted you into his family, given you the gift of repentant faith in Jesus Christ, made you his child, no longer his enemy, but now his child by faith in Jesus, we have brothers and sisters in Christ as well. If you've been united to the Son of God by faith, you have become a child of God, and so have a lot of other people. And so we've been brought into this household, this family of God. And so no matter what your background is, if you have been brought to Christ, then anybody who you meet who is also in Christ is your brother or your sister in Christ. In fact, even Phoebe is still our sister in Christ. She lived a long time ago. She's been an example to believers because of what's written about her in the book of Romans for many centuries. And so in a way, she's, she's something of a mother in the faith. But she's also still our sister in Christ, even right now, even as she is in heaven and has been there a long time. But who is Phoebe? It calls her here a servant of the church. This is an example to us. Now, servant of the church I just have to say here, a lot of people have made a big deal out of the term servant in this verse, and you might even have a translation of the Bible right now that instead of servant there, translates that as deacon. There are some uh, modern translations that do that, rather than servant, deacon. And it is the same word that's used for deacon, diakonos. And so some come to that and they say, okay, well, what this means is that Phoebe was an appointed officer of the church at Sincre. She was a deacon. Some would even go beyond that, and they would say, well, this means that Phoebe was the pastor of the church at Sincre, because sometimes that same word is used by Paul to refer to himself as a minister of the gospel. Or some even use this verse more broadly to try to attack all of the gender distinctions that are in the Bible. And to say, well, Phoebe just proves that all of those gender roles are just socially constructed things that we need to tear down. Well, the, the, the fact is, we, we don't need to read very much into this term. Uh, this term, diakonos, yes, when, when it talks about the office of deacon in two places in the Bible, that is the term that's used for it, but it's usually used in other ways to describe all kinds of servants doing all kinds of serving. It's just like when the word shepherd comes up in the Bible, sometimes it means pastor. It is sometimes a technical term for the office of pastor or elder or overseer. But Luke 2 is not telling us that because there were shepherds in the field, it's not saying, well, there happened to be a gathering of pastors out in the field the night that Jesus was born, and they just happened to be watching sheep. No, it's, it depends on the context. And just like that, Diakonos means servant. Sometimes it's used in the New Testament to refer to servants of a king. Sometimes it's used to refer to various other servants. Paul often refers to himself and to other apostles as servants, but not meaning that the apostles are deacons. Apostle is a different office than deacon, but they were serving. In Romans 13, government authorities are called servants. Diakonos. But that doesn't mean that God considers them to be church deacons. It means that wittingly or unwittingly, that those who are in positions of government authority are serving as ministers of God in keeping order in society. And the most, uh, the, the nearest uses of this word to verse 1 in chapter 16 are when Paul is talking about the service that he is bringing to the church in Jerusalem. 
where he says in, in Romans 15.25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid or diakoneo to the saints. He says, I am going to serve the saints. But he's not saying I am going to be a deacon at the church at Jerusalem. He's saying I am going to serve these saints who are in need. And in verse 31 of Romans 15, he asks that his service or his diakonos for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints to pray that this service would be well received. He's not saying pray that they would please make me a deacon in Jerusalem. He's saying I'm going to serve. And so that word is used in all kinds of ways, and it very rarely actually refers to the specific office of deacon. Another thing to know about this, there was there some who would say that Phoebe was a deacon. Well, here, here's something that Alexander Strauch put in his book called Paul's Vision for the Deacons. He says, If there were women deacons in the first churches of Ephesus and Sincre, it is truly remarkable that we do not see a clear record of these women deacons and their prescribed duties in post-apostolic Christian literature for more than 150 years after the time of Paul. Moreover, in Rome, there is no evidence of women deacons for hundreds of years after Paul's letter to the Romans. So what is it that it's saying that Phoebe did if she wasn't in the office of a deacon? Well, John Calvin nails it. He says, she performed a most honorable and a most holy function in the church. Praise God. You don't have to be an officer of the church to serve the church faithfully. That's what Phoebe was doing, and she is recognized here in Scripture as a faithful servant of the saints. Now, where, where did this come from, this faithful service? Well, it started with Jesus. It started with Jesus. Jesus uses that same word not to call himself a deacon, but to talk about the, the way in which he came to serve sinners like me. He says in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Do you know why we're here? It's because Jesus came to serve us. Jesus, who, if anybody could claim, I deserve to be served and not to serve it would have been Jesus, who's like literally the king of the universe. But what did he do? Well, he didn't consider that status of being God as something to be taken advantage of. This is what it says in Philippians 2. Not something to be grasped to hold of, to be taken advantage of, but rather he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He came, he came into this world in order to make himself low when he didn't have to to serve us who didn't deserve to have the king of the universe serving us. He came and he humbled himself, and he humbled himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now he's highly exalted. But how is it that we can have our sins forgiven? How is it that we, who were barreling toward hell in our sin and in our rebellion against God, how is it that we can have eternal life? Well, it's because Jesus intervened. Jesus intervened and came to give his life as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve. And so if you want to have eternal life, this is the way, is to know that Jesus came first to be our servant. He came to lay down his life where he didn't have to, to pay for our sins, 
so that we could place our faith in Him and have eternal life. He, he, he ransomed a people for Himself. And if you're among that people, you know what you're going to do? You're going to see that truth and you're going to respond in repentance and in faith. And you're going to be saved. And you're going to go to heaven. And so turn and trust in the service that Jesus has rendered for us. And so what's Phoebe doing here? Is she trying to take the place of Jesus? When somebody serves, are we trying to take the place of Jesus? No. But Jesus does say that because He set this example of sacrificially serving, that we then ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That we ought to not consider ourselves to be in, in some high up place where we just want to be recognized for, for what, what a high up person we are, but instead we ought to have that attitude of Christ, that attitude of humility of being willing to serve rather than to be served. And that's what Phoebe was doing. That's what Paul is commending her about here, that she was a servant of the church at Sincre. Jesus told all of his deacon, or excuse me, all of his uh, his disciples, not that they all ought to be deacons, but even using the same word, he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So how do we do that? Well, it describes it again with that same word in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And we, even as we, we prayed from Hebrews 6 just a minute ago, it says, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. We should follow Christ's example. And we should follow Phoebe's, Phoebe's example as she was following Christ's example, which was to humbly serve, to serve the people of God, as it says, the servant of the church. Now, obviously, we're not going to only serve the people of the church. We don't mean that we're going to neglect our neighbor of various other kinds. We don't mean that we're going we're gonna to pass by the, the person on the road who is, has been beaten and left for dead and, and be like that priest and that Levite who went by and didn't do anything. We want to be like the Good Samaritan. We want to say, whoever God has put in my path is my neighbor. But the Bible also says that we especially want to do that for those who are of the household of God. That we want to look and say, how can I serve? Phoebe was a faithful servant, and we should be faithful servants as well because Christ has first served us. Here's how her service is described. It's in verse 2. It says, you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, which we'll actually come back to. And it says, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. See, that's describing the way in which she has been a servant of the church. She has been a patron of many. Or some translations would say a helper of many. What exactly that means, it has, has a lot of theories. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where that word translated patron is used. And so there's different, different theories about what it is that Phoebe was doing. It could be that, that she was showing hospitality to Christians who were, who were traveling through town and, and giving them a place to stay. It could mean that she was providing financial help to people who were in a hard time. It could mean that she was doing acts of helping service 
for people who needed that service. It could be all of those. It could be more. It doesn't really specifically matter. But the point is that she was helping. She was seeing needs and she was meeting those needs. And that's something that we should admire and something that we should do and imitate. It's, it's possible, actually, to have an official title in the church and fail to do this. You can say to yourself, okay, well, I got a title. I got put in a position. Now all I have to do is show up for most of the meetings, and I'm good. And fail to look around to see the actual people that God has put us in fellowship with and actually think to ourselves and pray, how can I love these people? How can I serve them? What are the needs? What is it that I can do with the gifts that God has given me? If you want to know more about the gifts, you can go on the internet back to wherever it is that we have the sermons on Romans 12. And we talked about those there, but I'll just give you the summary to say whether you have an official title or not, if you're in Christ, you have spiritual gifts. And the way that you discover and you use those spiritual gifts is not by saying, I'm going to wait until I get given the title and the job that I want at the church. The way you use those spiritual gifts is you look at the church, which is the people, and you say, what can I do? Who can I help? And how can I do that in ways that I'm good at? That's how you work and cultivate your spiritual gifting, and that's how you serve. That's how you be a patron of many, and not a patron of Paul, quite like the way that that Phoebe was literally to Paul, but who knows who it is that you'll end up helping along the way. Who knows who it is that you'll end up serving with your spiritual gifts, and we should all be looking to do that. So there's the example of Phoebe that we should look at and follow as a role model, and now there's also the idea of welcoming and helping saints like Phoebe. So the things that kind of come in the middle here, the idea of, of not just commending her, but welcoming her, of helping her. Let's think of that. It says, welcome her in the Lord. Welcome her in the Lord. Now, what does that mean? As I said, Phoebe was probably, now we, we, we kind of have to read between the lines a little bit here, so we could kind of have the situation wrong, but think what's going on is that, that Phoebe was moving. She had lived in Sincre. She was a member of the church in Sincre. And now she's moving to Rome. And so when she shows up in Rome, she's going to want to find a place to live. She's going to want to get settled. She's going to want to join the church. And, and so Paul says, welcome her in the Lord. That's the very first thing, by the way. That That is the number one thing that's absolutely non-negotiable for who ought to be welcomed in as a member of the church. You need to be in the Lord. You know who decides whether or not you're in the Lord? Well, the Lord decides that. And, and, and as, as we, as, as Christians, uh, look at, at one another, well, we see that Jesus has told us, you shall know them by their fruit. He says, Here, here's how you know that, and what, what's the fruit that we're looking for? Well, we're looking for the fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we see somebody who is repentant to their sin and professes faith in Jesus Christ, we should say, that person is in the Lord. Praise God. And that's the number one thing that ought to define who is my brother and sister in Christ and who is it that we can welcome into the membership of the church 
welcome her in the Lord. And what's really happening here is that this little bitty portion of this great big letter is what we would call a letter of recommendation for church membership. Okay? A letter. Now, I grew up in Baptist churches, and, and in, uh, in Baptist churches in you know, the 80s and 90s as I was growing up, the standard practice was what it had been for a long time, which is that every, uh, every member of the church had this thing that was called a letter. And as a kid, I never quite knew what it was, but, but people talked about it as something that would stay with you. When you go to, you know, from one church to another church, whether it's because you, because you moved from one city to another or just because you, you like the music better or whatever it is, that, that uh, your letter would move with you. And it was assumed that if you went to a new church, that the new church would request your letter, the old church would send your letter. And I would hear people say growing up things like, oh no, I hear that that church is shutting down. What's going to happen to everybody's letter? And it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, and, and that form of a letter system eventually started to, to seem pointless, both to church members and to church leaders. And why did it start to seem pointless? Well, it's because it had actually become pointless. It didn't really mean a whole lot. And the sad thing is that most churches have now reacted to that, the, the, the pointless way that that letter system had ended up by having now swung the other direction to where there's absolutely no communication between churches at all when somebody goes from one church to another. But we do see this in the New Testament. We've got an example of it right here. This is a letter. This is a letter of recommendation where they're saying, hey, Phoebe is coming and she would like to join you at this church in Rome. And we just want to say here, we have seen the fruit of her life and we wholeheartedly recommend Phoebe to you to be a member of the church. We, we see examples of this in other places as well. Uh, we see an example of this in Acts chapter 18 as, uh, as there is this brother named Apollos. And Apollos is, uh, is going to go from, uh, from one church to another. And it says, when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And so that's where that comes from. And so what's, what's the system that there ought to be? Well, the system that there ought to be is that when a person is going from one church to another, that there ought to be communication between those churches. There ought to be communication to say, hey, we wholeheartedly recommend this person to you. Or uh, if, if a person is coming to us, what we do at this church is, is we, and when I say we, that typically means me, I call the previous pastor and I say, hey, I know it's painful when somebody leaves your church, but we just need to know, are they under discipline? Is there any reason why we need to send them back to you? And I mean that seriously. Because occasionally there are people who come to church and they think, well, just because I'm here, everybody ought to say, hooray, let's throw a party, when in fact the reason they're here is because they have serious spiritual problems that they have not dealt with at the previous place. And they need to go and deal with those. And so there, there needs to be a level of communication between churches. That's originally what that letter system was supposed to be about, it was supposed to be about saying, hey, we can recommend this person to you in the Lord, just as Paul recommended Phoebe. 
And it became something different, and so we've had to handle it differently. And now I think it's, it's I would guess, probably about 90% of churches where, where we have somebody leave and go there or somebody come to us, we, we get no communication from them. It's a hard thing to deal with. But this is biblical. It's in the New Testament for churches to be in communication with each other. Essentially, it, just, it ought not to be the case that somebody can hop from one church to another when they're under discipline or when they have conflicts that, that won't, they won't resolve, or when they just feel like it. That shouldn't be something that happens. But we should be willing to say, hey, God has called this person to move, dare I say it, to Florida. Why would you do that? Don't do that. But to be willing to say, hey, church in Florida, we commend to you our brother in Christ, our sister in Christ. They're in the Lord. They're faithful in the Lord. They are a faithful servant, and we commend them to you. But he's, he says here to welcome and to help. Welcome and to help. Welcome is bring her into your membership. Help is help her get set up. Please help her. You know, this is, this is, you just imagine traveling in the first century, moving to a new town. It's, it's not like she could fly out there in advance and, and find an apartment. You know, she, she's going to hit the ground needing help. And so this letter is saying to the church in Rome, hey, this is not just some random lady who's showing up and using the name Jesus to get a place to stay. Like, you need to welcome her, you need to help her. And that's the kind of thing that we ought to have the attitude of. When God sends us brothers and sisters in Christ, say, hey, we're in the Lord together, let's welcome one another. We're in the Lord together, let's help each other. Just as Paul said about Phoebe. But another great example of, of role models in the faith to follow are Prisca and Aquila. Now, when I say Prisca, I might switch in back, I might switch back and forth between, between saying Prisca and Priscilla. You know why I might do that? Because they're the same person. It's just two ways of saying the same name, all right? It's kind of like how some of you call me Daniel and some of you call me Dan, but it's, I, hopefully you're talking about the same guy. All right, so Prisca and Priscilla are the same person in the New Testament, and she is married to Aquila. And Paul says, greet them. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Well, who are they? He says, they are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now this greeting, he's switching from saying, receive Phoebe, who I'm sending to you, to now saying, greet this, this couple who is with you that I know and that I love. And he's going to say something about, about what they have done. So this is apparently a, a married couple who are members of the church in Rome, and Paul knows them well. There, there's actually three different places, uh, three different locations in the New Testament that are spoken of where this couple served faithfully in churches, and not only did that, but also had church meetings that were held in their home. In uh, early in Acts 18, it talks about uh, the church meeting in their home in Corinth. And then later in Acts 18, they go with Paul to Ephesus and seem to then stay in Ephesus and seem to start having church meetings in Ephesus in their home and, and to serving the Lord there. And, and now they're in Rome. Well, how did Paul meet them in the first place? Well, it, it seems like this couple was from Rome to start with. And it seems that they were, uh, were Jews who had embraced Christ as Savior, and that in, in A.D. 49, when the emperor Claudius decided that he hated Jews and he wanted none of them in Rome, that they were among that big group that got kicked out 
of Rome, which kind of has to do with some of the, the situation of the letter to the Romans and why it is that they're asking all these Jewish versus Gentile questions, and I could go on about that. But I'll just say this in Acts 18, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy from Rome, really, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so they had the same trade as Paul. Paul was a bivocational pastor. He, he got some support from churches, but he also did manual labor and sold things in order to help support himself and to support the work of the gospel. He was a tent maker. That word could also be translated as leather worker. And Priscilla and Aquila had the same vocation, and so maybe that's part of why they hit it off so well very early on. But Priscilla and Aquila weren't just tent makers. They were faithfully serving the Lord, and while they were in the Ephesus, as they had actually traveled there with Paul as part of his missionary journey, they stayed there and they were able to be a great help to the church. And, and to help in ways that included keeping the church on the path of right doctrine. Here's what it says in Acts 18.24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, which we actually mentioned him just a second ago, because later they, they sent a letter of recommendation for him. But Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos was preaching, and he was zealously preaching Jesus, but it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he was a preacher, he was zealous, but he had some stuff wrong in what he was preaching. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explain to him the way of God more accurately. What a gift. What a gift for Priscilla and Aquila to be willing to say, this man is zealous for the Lord, and he's getting some stuff wrong from the pulpit, but we have enough wisdom, we're not going to just jump up and start screaming at him. We're going to say, hey, can we go have coffee with you? Or not coffee, whatever they had back then. I don't know. But can, can we come aside and can we talk with you? And, and it says, hey, we, you know what? We've, we've been traveling around with the Apostle Paul, and he's really, really helped us grow in our understanding of the faith. And can we, just, can we tell you some of the things that, that Jesus taught that you're not quite getting right here, in particular about baptism, it seems, but maybe some other things as well? And, and through that conversation, they, they were able to, to take this zealous, gifted preacher and to make him an orthodox preacher of the gospel. Orthodox means straight teaching, right doctrine. So, so that he was able to go and essentially become the pastor of the church at Corinth after Paul had left there. It's amazing what God did, and he did this through this man and this woman who were fellow workers in the gospel. What an example that is, to be a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. I wonder if it could be said of you and of me that we are fellow workers in Christ Jesus. I hope that that would be a goal for you. As somebody who has embraced Christ as your Savior, I hope that that's the case. To now say, 
I don't want to just be served. I want to serve. And I don't want to just serve. I want to be a worker together for the cause of Jesus. I want to serve people in the name of Jesus. I want to promote and to tell the gospel of Jesus. I want to work for the glory of Jesus in my working for the good of the people of the church and of the world. Is that a goal in your life? Is that something where you could look at the example of Priscilla and Aquila and say, let's get things together to be a more faithful fellow worker in Christ Jesus? How can you do that? Well, one of the things that they did, it says this, verse 4, who risked their necks for my life. That's amazing. Risked their necks for my life. We don't know exactly what this means. You know, did they physically put their necks down on a chopping block and say, you got to come through us before you get to Paul? We don't know. It's probably more of an idiom where he's just saying they put themselves in danger in order to in order to help me in this work of the gospel. We, we don't have specific information in the New Testament but about what this incident was that Paul was talking about. But, but it probably has something to do with some of the stuff that he lists in 2 Corinthians 11.23-26. Some of the things that Paul went through in his preaching of the gospel, he says, I went through imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and dangers from false brothers." Somewhere in there, Aquila and Priscilla were right there with him, sticking out their necks, willing to be in the danger with him for the sake of Christ Jesus and the progress of the gospel. There were a lot of people who would not do this for Paul. 2 Timothy 1.15 says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So many who saw, oh, uh, we, we really like Paul, we really like his teaching, but he's about to get arrested. We're out of here. Second Timothy 4.16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He, he specifically lists one man in Second Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Hmm. You see, there, there were some who, who would shrink back at danger, even one who is mentioned as being in love with the world. And that's the reason why he wouldn't risk his neck. But do you know who did? Priscilla and Aquila. They were willing to stick their necks out. They were willing to walk into danger. You know, Jesus had this happen to him. Jesus, much more than Paul, in fact, it says in Matthew 26, 56, as Jesus was, was being taken away in order to be tried and crucified, it says, then all the disciples left him and fled. This was predicted in Psalm 31, 11. It says, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. 
Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. He says, all these adversaries are making people that I thought were on my side bolt for the doors. But Priscilla and Aquila, they put their necks out. I wonder if, if we can look at that example. They were faithful workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their necks. And if we can consider, am I willing to stand for the Gospel even when danger is presented to me in my life for it? Even when there are potential consequences? I mean, thankfully, by God's grace, in the USA, the potential consequences that we face are not usually, literally, life-threatening. It's usually more something like, I may not get this promotion if I stick my neck out for the cause of Christ. Or I may have to look for a different position. Or I may not be welcome in my previous group of friends. That kind of thing. If those sorts of things would make you shrink back you really, really need to pray for more grace. You need to pray that God would help you. That God would give you the grace of courage to stand with Christ. But also, there are those in this world, even right now, who are literally sticking their necks out for the sake of the Gospel. The last prayer meeting that we held, you know, not this past week because we had our business meeting, but the week before, we were talking about uh, one of the uh, one of the ladies who was there to pray was talking about something that she had had seen about what's going on in North Korea, and how just for possessing a Bible verse, you can be thrown into a prison camp or even executed. I mean, that's really literally happening to brothers and sisters in Christ today, and we pray for them to have courage. We don't pray for them to be executed, but we pray for them to stand for the cause of Christ. And wherever that is in between, we, we never know when will it turn? When will our lives turn to where standing faithfully for Christ goes from having the appearance of providing us with worldly blessings to now having the, the, the obvious ramification that we could be put in a position of danger and a loss? Are, are we going to shrink back? Well, let's, let's instead look to the, the example of Priscilla and Aquila who risked their necks for my life. One of the things that reminds me of also is the whole book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation. It's written to these seven churches in Asia, and to every church it says at the end of it, to the one who conquers. And it says the rewards that Christ will give in heaven. To the one who conquers. There's this calls throughout the book of Revelation to persevere. How does it say that they conquered in Revelation 14? It's because they love not their lives even unto death. And then what happens in Revelation 21 when the new heaven and the new earth is coming? Well, it's those who have conquered, who stand there together with Christ. Those who have stood firm to the end. And Revelation 21.8 speaks of those who did not stand firm to the end. Who were not in Christ. And, and it says, the very first thing that it says in Revelation 21.8, uh, characterizing those who were thrown into the lake of fire, is that all cowards are there. That's why it puts cowards first on the list, is because that's what the whole book of Revelation is about. Stand firm. Don't shrink back in fear. 
And even right now, look to the example of Priscilla and Aquila, who did not run when their association with the Apostle Paul for his preaching of the gospel put their necks on the line. Let's stand firm in Christ, even if it's going to put us in danger. So, when we see things like this, we should seek to follow the example. We should seek to follow the example of Phoebe. We should seek to follow the example of Priscilla and Aquila. But we should also give thanks for saints like Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila. That's what it says in verse 4. Who risked their lives for my necks, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Where he says the churches of the Gentiles, he's kind of pointing out these are Jewish believers, and there's been a lot of Gentile Jewish issues brought up in Romans, and I want to bring up this couple as a stellar example of faithful, gospel-holding Jewish believers that should be an example to you and that you should honor. That's part of why he's saying this. But he also says, I give thanks. The churches give thanks, not only to God for them, but also to them. So, so many of the prayers that we see that Paul prays for the churches in the New Testament have to do with praying to God, thanking God for them, thanking God for the fruits that God has, has accomplished in their life, thanking God for their faith and their hope and their love. But you also see right here, it's not just thanking God for them, but also that we can look at each other and we can thank each other. Where, where you see a brother or sister in Christ who is serving faithfully, who is serving courageously, to say, thank you for serving the Lord. Now, if you have a brother or sister in Christ who says that to you after the service, and you don't know how to handle that kind of thanks, just say, praise God. <laughs> because that's what they really mean. They really mean God is doing a gracious work in you. And we thank God for that. I do want to just mention one more time the reason all of this came together. The reason we can say I want to be like the servant Phoebe is because Christ has first served us by laying down his life as a ransom for our sins. Embrace the service that Jesus has given you. And as somebody who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, see if we can follow the example of these faithful servants in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture of those who have served you faithfully. Lord, we, we don't pretend that Phoebe was without sin or that Priscilla or that Aquila were without sin. Lord, we in fact know that the whole reason that they're held up as examples here is because, because they, were, uh, they had humbly confessed their sins and come out of the darkness and into the light, brought their sins to Christ and been forgiven. And Lord, we know that, that as lives throughout the, the Scriptures are explained in greater depth, that even the greatest heroes of the faith have some of the most embarrassing sins listed in the Scriptures. And Lord, we know that and we feel that, but we pray that you would also help us to follow the examples that you've given us here. We thank you that Jesus has been our first example, and we thank you that the example that he gave us is not just an example, but is our very hope as he substituted himself on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. God, grant us to repent, to believe, and to keep in the faith of Jesus Christ. And as those who are in Christ, would you grant us love to serve, and would you grant us courage to stand for Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.